Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Com. Danger! Rattlesnake. I have my picture taken next to the Danger Rattlesnake sign in the Badlands. Now, there's many signs in the Badlands warning you that if you're hiking to watch out for rattlesnakes. I did not encounter one, nor did any member of my family, so good. Good news on that. Just got back from South Dakota and uh, had, a, had a good vacation, um, an unusual vacation in terms of weather. One day we had 105 degrees and sunny. And another day it was 55 degrees, windy, rainy, and cold. So, yeah, I mean, quite the variation. Um, fortunately, we were able to schedule out kind of like a buffer day and move a few things around to make sure we're doing like Mount Rushmore on actually the morning of the 105 degree day, which it wasn't bad there at all. It was and traffic was pretty light. Um, so that, that turned out well. Um, but yeah, just, just really strange to have that, that, I think it was the warmest, um, that 105 was the warmest day in June, according to some locals, um, some ranchers were telling me that. So, but it, it didn't seem like that hot because it it wasn't very humid. Um, but then that also had me worrying a little bit about oh wildfires because obviously they can um, they can happen very quickly this time of year. So here's here's my impression though. So I went to uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, twenty years ago. Twenty years ago, exactly, nineteen ninety eight. And when I came in this time, um, it was, it's just so much more sprawl and it's, it's urban sprawl. It's like Menards and Best Buys and Holiday Inns and Holiday Inn Express and whatever. Um, since they have a lot of room, they can, they can do this, but you know, the interstate has been, completely rebuilt and it, they were working on it while we were out there and, and being enlarged. And part of that I'm sure has to do with the Bakken oil field, um, not too far away in North Dakota, but you know, you need to transport goods and materials and, and things, but, um, had, had kind of a odd feeling to it because I was anticipating what it would be like when we went there 20 years ago, that it wouldn't have changed much. And the part that stuck with me was, um, you know, everything that has been built, like the Best Buys, and we even saw some restaurants that were no more than maybe 
you know, two, three years old, which were already abandoned, couldn't make it. Um, but for the most part, I guess the economy seemed like it was doing pretty good out there. But um, all of these places that have been built, the Menards, the Best Buy, the Holiday Inns, those type of things, you know, they're not going to age like historic Rapid City. They're not going to age like the stone buildings downtown. So this is all eventually going to become, you know, just stuff that kind of turns into blight within 50 to 100 years versus, again, what the community, the original buildings, the buildings from the 1880s and turn of the century, how those things just become kind of more special with time. But I guess, you know, it's it's indicative of a lot of places across America. And actually on our way out there, we were going through towns, which then I would go and, and I'd look, what's the population of like Mitchell, South Dakota, which was just booming roads and all kinds of the big Cabela's and the Menards and new hotels and things like that. And um, that that had grown substantially too. I mean, Mitchell, South Dakota is probably more popular for the Corn Palace. We enjoyed, um, it was a prehistoric Indian uh, dig site there. They did an awesome job with a tour, and then they have some kind of dome over, um, I think, 10,000 square feet of just dirt where they're excavating out where these, I believe, again, like 60 um, huts were kind of built. Not teepees, but like huts. They would dig down in the ground, and then they would put wooden walls and kind of that um, put the dirt, they call it dab, dab method, weave and dab or something. Um, and there was this, the, apparently some tribe that had lived there for about a hundred years, but that was about a thousand years ago. So, um, but this is kind of new. That, that, that was a really nice, they did a nice tour. It wasn't very busy. Not that it wasn't busy because it wasn't good, but Mitchell's a smaller area and you have to drive a little bit to get to this. I would strongly recommend it though for anyone that has any interest. Um, they have a very nice, um, they, they've replicated a hut inside of this building. Um, very, very well done. They give you the, the walk through the tour and then um, you can actually see the dig happening inside this building. And then once you go out, you can see like all of the other places they'd have to excavate. And I was asking the guy, the guy who was pretty funny, um, younger, younger guy, maybe like 20 or something who kind of like worked with the tour guide. Um, but I said, you know, what, what will it take to excavate all of this stuff? Because you, you have, um, this, this dome, you know, which covers just a fraction of this property. And then you can just look out and see where all of these other huts would be and stuff. And I think just in the dome alone, it was like 50 years. And then they would have to either move the dome to another area or else, you know, build additional domes or however they would do that. But I mean, you're probably looking at, in that area, hundreds of years to excavate this. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. So, um, but anyway, Mitchell, South Dakota, uh, it's the prehistoric Indian village. If you're ever on your way out um, on the interstate, just get off. Again, I think it's like a mile away from the Corn Palace. We didn't go there. We didn't go to the Corn Palace, um, however. So um, we, Mount Rushmore, you know, Mount Rushmore really is cool. I was there 20 years ago. 
Um, the parking has improved substantially since then. It was easy to get to. Glad I have a six-cylinder car with all of the, the <laughs> you know, you're driving on pretty steep roads, and, and, and those have been improved, but um, I've got a bigger six-cylinder car. And that was also fun on um, the 80-mile-an-hour highways. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, wide open and, and um, uh, yes, definitely made things much more enjoyable. Had to drop it down a few times out of drive in some of the areas. Um, and I could have I made it, you know, out in drive, but it was just easier to drop it, drop it down into, like, third gear, second gear at times. Um, especially when we got into Custer Park, I'll talk about that because things got really, really kind of steep there. Um, but so yeah, Mount Rushmore and they were having a ceremony for, uh, people who were going to become new citizens. So down below, so you can see Mount Rushmore and you can walk up and there's flags of all of the states, and I don't know, all the U.S. territories or whatever. So it's, it's, it's really well done. And then you approach, and then now there's there's um, a seating area where you there's bleachers, and, the, and they're like the outdoor composite plastic-type bleachers, the good stuff. Um, that's all. That was never there before. Um, really well done, so you can sit and you can take in Mount Rushmore. But down below... Now there's this kind of amphitheater type area, which may have been there. I don't know if it was there in the past, but that was all done up with like a huge flag. It was flag day and um, many folding seats, but like the really nice kind of folding seats, <laughs> you know, like the padded folding seats. And they seem to all have like reserve markers. And there was um, a park worker behind me and um, he was, he was getting radioed from down below that the ceremony was close to starting like, 15, 20 minutes away and only half the people had showed up. So they probably had, I would guess like 200 chairs set up. And, um, so this guy was pretty, pretty upset about this <laughs> and probably rightfully so. Um, you know, he's like, these people made reservations to be here, confirmed that they were going to be here for their citizenship. Um, and maybe this is a formality. I don't know. Maybe they already have become citizens and this is like a ceremony that goes with it. I don't know. But it was like a super nice morning. And this was just so formal. And I'm thinking if you become a citizen and you blow off like your citizen ceremony, um, I, I'm not sure that's the same as like not attending your college graduation, which I didn't do, by the way. I guess I blew that off. Um I think this is much more substantial. If you're becoming a citizen of the United States and you've done all of your coursework and whatever, um, and then you decide that for some reason you're not showing up for the ceremony. I mean, this is something I would think like if I was becoming a citizen, I would be there very early. And it's and there was plenty of parking. It, there wasn't traffic to get up there at all. I mean, there were no, the weather was perfect. There were, there, so I mean, you'd, you'd be there the night before, you'd set your alarms, set three alarms, get the wake up call, do whatever, friend call you, um, and, and you'd get up there and you'd be ready to go. So I don't know, it just struck me as kind of like, wow, like why are there these people? And it, you know, it's individual people. It's not like, you know, one family of like 35 people are becoming citizens. So, um, I don't know. It, it, it kind of struck a chord with me, but I could tell it bothered this park ranger 
because he was radioing, radioing back, and I pretended like not to kind of tune into what he was saying, but I was in the perfect position because <laughs> there was a, a wall in back of him, so every time he was kind of speaking, like I, it could kind of bounce off and come back to me. And when they radioed up, it was loud enough where I could kind of radio. I could hear like the person below, of like, where is everybody? So anyway, um, we didn't we didn't kind of catch the ceremony. We didn't stay for that. I don't know if from where we were sitting, like we, were, we it was literally, you know, down like another hundred feet. It was pretty cool. You could look down there and stuff. Um, but um, yeah, anyway. Uh, just thought that was that was something. You're going to become a U.S. citizen, and then it's like all of these empty chairs. So they they probably could have had like the sit-ins, like they do at the Oscars when somebody gets up to go to the bathroom, like someone else has to take their place. So when they pan with the camera, like you know, it doesn't seem like it's empty. So they probably could have called me and some other people come down. Although I I, I don't like a Green Bay Packers T-shirt that day, so I don't think it would have worked. Would have had to be more formal. Wouldn't have felt right doing it. So. Also interesting that I talked to some people in who live in Rapid City and near South near near Mount Rushmore, and they're like, "What? What was going on?" And and they said, "You know, like it'd be nice if the papers covered this and the media and things." And and that also reminded me, like, I didn't see any media there covering this, so maybe they do, maybe they don't, but it seemed to be like something that was um, a long time friction point with some of the people I talked to live there being like, why aren't we aware when things like this happen? Um, Cause I don't know. seems like it'd be kind of neat to go out and see something like that. Kind of, it was hard to explain that concept to my daughters of like the becoming the citizen um, because I wasn't ready to really, I like, I was, you know, and then in, in the moment to try to like say, well, the people that move here and then, you know, they have to become, they can, they should become citizens. There's a way to do that. But then, you know, I don't want to get into the whole political side of the people who come here and don't have any intention of becoming citizens. Um, so we just kind of let that one ride and it was all right. So I want to, um, talk about Custer Park, which was, Custer Park is awesome. It's where the, the bison roam, the bagging burrows, um, the, you know, the donkeys and, uh, just, it, just incredible. So you go through and very steep. Okay. We're talking thousands of acres and I didn't realize. So I'm looking at, at these pine and they're all like dead. I'm like, well, what the hell? Like, this is really bad. Like, this should all be out of here. This is a high risk fire thing. And what would cause these is there's some kind of, you know, like pine bug, pine disease going around. Well, I did a little research and I didn't realize that in December of 2017, you know, or like six months, six, seven months ago, they had uh, a massive wildfire, massive in the park. And the problem was when they had this wildfire is it, so it's winter they didn't have snow covered. Usually they have snow cover. And they they kind of decommissioned their firefighting forces, you know, that they hire for the summer, their wildland firefighters. And then also, um, you know, it's pretty sparse. So it's, it's hard to get fire crews and things like that rallied together. Um, but there was a fire going on in Southern California at the same time. And, or, so that had already garnered a lot of the 
more of the nomadic firefighters, the wildland firefighters and, and equipment. So to try to, to get this stuff in Custer Park, I mean, took a while to assemble. So this actually got to be a pretty substantial fire, did quite a bit of damage, not to, I believe, buildings, but to the park itself. Um, now, everything was kind of greened up when we were there, but again, these pines were, were all dead. Um, and yeah, it, it was really, really something. So you go through the park too, and it's very steep and switchbacks and things like that when you're driving. Sometimes it's a one lane bridge, one lane bridge, and then also a tunnel, one lane tunnel that's cut right through, um, right through the rock. <laughs> so you're driving right through the mountain on this one lane tunnel. Um, so very interesting stuff. So again, very glad I have a, a six bigger six cylinder engine and I was able to, to ride through that. But um, there was a guy who was, was on his way down and just smoke is pouring from his engine and probably from like his disc brakes to had a big pickup, newer pickup, but was hauling, um, a, a camper, big camper. And this thing must have, I mean, put so much strain on that vehicle, but literally like he's just, it's, it, it's not like just antifreeze, the smell of like antifreeze. It was the smell of a burnt oil engine for this guy. And I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, bad decision. Like literally it stunk for half a mile <laughs> after the guy passed us. Like on the way down, we're going the other way. And then I'm thinking too, like your brakes have just got to be cooked. But um, everything was great. You know, our vehicle handled everything really well. And um, But too, it, it's a, it's weird because I didn't I didn't know where I was going up there. And the, the Garmin, um, there's so much new construction too. And, and the Garmin sometimes gets unreliable. And it kind of, you know... The, the Garmin has gone galt a few times on me on this trip too. So I'm thinking I might have to replace my Garmin, which is only like a year and a half old, but it's it's been for the most part reliable. But there's some times when it just like, it says it overheats and it's done. And I'm like, what? I mean, the old one, like you could literally like throw it, you know, on top of, throw it to the sun and it would it would keep working. But um, so I'm like, oh, I don't know. But then, um, yeah, it started to get goony and it was resetting. So the uh, the Garmin might might have to go um, replace it, though. I like my Garmin, but this thing, something's... It, oh, it would say that you don't have the proper cord to get updates for traffic. And I'm like, it's a cord that came with this. Dude, thing here, you're the, you're the cord. Don't give me this. So, um, yeah, and, and it, was, it was really weird. It was really weird. Because one of the reasons I almost missed the prehistoric thing, it wouldn't find the address. And then when I tried to program in it as a tourist attraction, it was having no part of it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. The Garmin was not up for the trip, certainly. The Garmin was not up for the trip. Um, we went to an alpaca farm, Caputa Alpaca Ranch, C-A-P-U-T-A. We had um, a tour of the ranch from Glenn Lepp, L-E-P-P. And that's his, so it's Caputa Alpaca Ranch in Caputa, South Dakota, maybe about 10 miles out of Rapid City. So it's kind of between Rapid City and the Badlands, but on like the 44 route or whatever, not the main highway. 
just first of all, awesome, awesome tour. So imagine um, there's about 180 alpaca. It's a range, but then there, you know, there's like a main building, and he's setting it up with about 10 maybe campsites where you could pull in a camper or a trailer and set up, and then I think an area where you, there'd be showers and stuff like that. It's, it's really nice. He had a, there was a fire there like two years ago. His house burned down and everything, and um, he had a picture of it that he showed me. So everything's been rebuilt, but super nice guy, Glenn Lepp, super nice, super nice guy. And uh, he he took my daughters. I mean, my one daughter is like an alpaca fanatic. I mean, she loves alpacas. My older daughter is like knows everything about alpacas. It's just kind of her thing. And she she has for a couple of years. This isn't anything like new. Um, so this is really the reason we did the alpaca farm. But um, we get out. It's toward the end of our day. We're the only ones there. I mean, because you have to drive out a ways, and it was hot by that time. And this guy is so accommodating, takes us right down to where the alpacas are, opens up the little fence thing. And the, and the alpacas are super nice. You know, they're not charging at you, snorting at you, anything like that, trying to bite you. They're, they're super nice. So we have all these alpacas. He brings some feed. They're coming around us. My daughters are getting to pet them. I mean, it's making their day. There is one alpaca, just three days old. And uh, he, you know, carries it over, although it's like walking with the rest of them just to show us and let the girls pet it. And, um, and, and, but such a nice guy. And Glenn was telling me, cause I asked him, I said, do you get rattlesnakes out here? He said, well, no, the, the animals pretty much like, you know, are a deterrent, but he said, we had one in the garage. <laughs> um, so I'm like, whoa, but, uh, yeah, spent a lot of time, a lot of time, uh, with my girls, making sure he's bringing over like different, he knows all of them by name. Like he has 180, he's like, hey, Bernice, you know, Sarah, Tony, you know, Bunny, all of these. I'm like, and they all have tags, but I mean, still like there's four of them and they all look the same to me, but um, such a, again, such a nice guy. And then there's a stream that apparently it's like a, it gets turned on and off. It goes through the property um, it's a diversion off of some river or whatever, but it was just really, really cool to do that, to go to this alpaca farm. Um, and then I was able to talk to, you know, Glenn about some of the, um, you know, what, what it's like to live out there and, and things like that. Um, so I, I had a great time conversing with him and, and about the land and how he, you know, how they maintain the land and, and stuff like that. Um, he was he was surprised with the temperature. He was telling me he said that hundred and five was very very unusual. I think he actually said it was like the hottest day of June on record um, for that day, like in where he was at. So, if you get to uh, Rapid City, your kids are into alpacas. Check it out. They also sell um, alpaca like socks and alpaca. Clothing, they're starting to get into this line. Um, I already owned a couple pairs of alpaca socks, and I was fortunate to pick up another pair of biking socks. Um, and they're the best. Like smart wool, I also like. Alpaca seems to maybe be a little more durable. That's one thing I've noticed when I bike is the, the toes hold up really well in alpaca. They hold up well in smart wool too, but probably better with alpaca socks. And um, 
Cotton is rotten. If you ask TJ Martinell from at tjmartinell.com, the Mountain Pass podcast, give that a listen. But anyway, yeah, you don't want to be hiking or running or biking with cotton. You just get blisters. So um, you can go to uh, Caputa Alpaca Ranch and get your supply of um, alpaca socks and you'll be all set. So we, we went to Deadwood. We have to, right? But um, I had mixed feelings about that because, again, I'm thinking I have this image of Deadwood, probably like an 1880s Deadwood, you know. So we get there, and they do have kind of like the, the area that is more original, obviously. But then they were having some festival, which they were setting things up in the street, and so didn't do too much down there. They have a really nice museum, the Adams Museum. It's it's free, set up oh just really well, like for kids and adults and. Um, that was, that was very nice. And also went up to the, um, was it the St. Uh, Moria, um, or Mount Moria Cemetery well, while Bill Hickok is up there. Um, so that, that was cool. It was very steep. <laughs> and then once you get up there and park up there, then you have to like walk through the cemetery. And I'm thinking what would motivate somebody to like put the cemetery on such a steep hill anyway, but <laughs> I don't know. Um, and in, that was neat. That that was really neat because in my, in what I was envisioning and everything I had kind of seen in Westerns and stuff like that, I was just thinking this hill was going to be this like dirt hill with these old markers. And it was much more, you know, green and lush. And of course they've put money into maintaining it. Now, but I think like they have 3,000 burials and they have a thousand markers, so they have 2,000 that aren't marked, so they're trying to get those marked and a lot of mass graves. So, but it was one of those things like it's cool to see because you hear about Deadwood and, and the cemeteries. So, my uh, we so you know, we had some rain, and one of the nights when it rained, I left my driver's side window open like about an inch, which was enough to pretty much like soak my seat. Now my seat is leather and I did condition the leather before I left. So I was able to take a towel from our hotel room and go down and wipe the seat and nothing soaked in, which was good. And nothing got on like the dash and I was able to wipe down the controls and on the, you know, windows and stuff like that. So it wasn't too bad, but it was irritating because I was like, ugh. But the good thing is, you know, in the parking lot and stuff, it's well lit. I mean, it's a safe area, so you didn't have to worry about someone breaking in. But, um, yeah, I was like, oh. But thankfully, and I did Rain-X my windshield like crazy before we left. Like, use the whole bottle of Rain-X. Like, layer on, layer off, layer on, layer on, off. And that, that turned out to be a good decision because we ran into quite a bit of rain at certain times when we travel, and then also on the way back, some heavier rain. So, you know, if you rain X like that, as long as you don't take it through a car wash, in my experience, like you're probably good for, you know, about a week to two weeks. Then I also had rain X in the, the windshield washer fluid, so I think I could have like reapplied some. Um, but that really made a difference when we were out there, especially like because you don't know where you're at. Like it's totally different. You don't know where you're at and you're driving. If you're you know, not having to, to deal with poor visibility. So, um, Rain-X, give it a try. My seven-year-old daughter, she loves steak 
and uh, she had a couple flat iron steaks. Um, one steak place we went to, it was so neat. Um, she had this little flat iron steak brought out in front of her, and mom cut it all up, and then she had it with the steak sauce, and she ate it quickly. <laughs> but I took a picture of her just because um, she's always been like the the one that loves steak, even like when she was very little, maybe like two years old or something. We were at Lambeau Field, and something involved um, steak, and um, broke it up into tiny little pieces and just let her try it, and um, and she really liked it. So <laughs> she's always been the the steak eater. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. A 13-year-old boy drowned in a small lake about five blocks from my house. This happened three days ago. It's a popular sandy beach. Um, they have a lifeguard there, and they have a roped-off section um, that the lifeguard, actually I think lifeguards, monitor. And then they have areas obviously outside of that. I believe it's like a 70-acre lake. And... Um, Anyway, this boy was outside, he's 13 years old, was outside of this area um, that was monitored by the lifeguards and had an inner tube and then a relative, apparently it was a busy day. It was hot, it was a busy day, a lot of of people out there. Relative noticed he was missing, um, stopped the police as they were driving by and they searched and other people there were searching and and then they called in the uh, search team. they, you know, come in with the scuba, call, they weren't able to find him. Um, they did it another day, brought in an additional resources like an underwater sonar sub. Another county brought its search team. Then another county today brought its search team and a more advanced sonar, um, kind of underwater drone, I should say, drone sub type thing. No, it's not manned, but I mean it's remote. And the problem is that um, there's so many weeds in this area that's outside the swimming area. It's very thick weeds. And it also drops down to like 80 feet. So you wouldn't think that for like a 70 acre, but apparently it drops down to like 80 feet. And so they're having a really hard time um, with the weeds. So the family's been there. Um, participating in this rescue i think they've so they've blocked off the road so you can't get there um and it i mean it's 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 really um horrific first of all to have a a drowning and there's been drownings there before Um, but the other part is when you can't find obviously the, the body 
So um, as a critical instant debriefer, I would anticipate I'll be contacted, um, you know, once there is closure on this and working with um, some people who are involved in this. Um, that would just be an, an anticipation I would have, the fact that I am on the county instant debriefing team, but obviously not at a point yet where there can be a debriefing. There hasn't been closure to this event. So, um, but definitely, you know, with a heavy heart for that. And, you know, that the family is participating um, actively, you know, also on there um, going out with the boats and, you know, observing. And I think it's got to be really hard, um, obviously really hard to do, but also it, it has to have a feeling of like being the right thing to do because otherwise you would be sitting on what, you know, on benches watching, at least here you're feeling like you're participating. Um, I don't know. I, it, it's, I can, I can, I, you, I, you wouldn't want to be not there. I mean, you want to, you would want to be there. You want to be there the moment that they find this boy. Um, but the fact that you're also then participating, I, I think gives, um, some greater sense of contributing to hopefully a rapid closure to identify, you know, to identifying where the body's at and uh, recovering, you know, this boy's body. But just a reminder of, you know, you got kids, um, get them, you know, if you're not a strong swimmer, which in this case that was reported, um, but even if you are, I mean, wear a life vest. Wear a life vest if you're going to be out. Um because, you know, you never know what currents are. The thing is, too, you never know what's under the water. If there's fishing nets, if there's, you know, because um, people fish these areas, the weeds and things like that. But you get snagged in, um, you know, some fishing line and you got some 40-pound test line and it gets wrapped around. You know, you can suddenly, you know, have a pole of, you know, 80, 80 pounds and then some of you have to make a you have to break through that, which it might not be possible. So I think that's that's the whole other part, you know, it's to keep the buoyancy with, with a life jacket. And, but unfortunately, you know, this is extremely unfortunate and uh, very sad. And um, I'm going to do anything and everything that I can um, to help when that time comes. I mean, right now they have a very um, tight group of people that they're working with on this. And then, you know, they'll... They'll broaden that out, um, you know, once the rescue has has happened or once the recovery has happened. So a thank you to John Grant and the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. The 405media.com airs the Safety Doc podcast, 2 p.m. PST daily. Okay, 2 p.m. PST daily. You can listen to the Safety Doc podcast. Go in there. You can also check out previous podcasts. Check out my website, safetyphd.com, safetyphd.com. I do a blog post for every show. If you go on Podbean, uh, you'll find the show, iTunes, wherever. But we host on Podbean, and you can go back, listen to the previous 71 shows. 
Um, I did move over to Podbean in December, so some of the earlier shows look like they don't have a lot of views or downloads when actually they did, but that was on a different platform. So when I moved, obviously all of those downloads don't appear. Um, but we've had a really strong um, strong number of downloads. People who watch the show on, on YouTube um, email me with questions. I appreciate that. I'm going to talk about an article that I was interviewed um, for. My, so I'm, I'm quoted within this article, and the article is. I'm, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to talk about the position I have and why I have this position. So the article is: Schools are investing in war zone trauma kits in case a shooting happens. It's by Megan Cirillo, C E R U L L O. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, Megan. Your last name. Um, June 13th, 2018, New York Daily News. So Megan left a message for me. I'm recognized, you know, as a safety expert in school safety. And um, I, I was actually on my way, <laughs> I think, from Mitchell to Rapid City. And I happened to pull over to Wayside and check, and the message was on the phone. So then I heard the message, and she had left it just a little bit before, asked if I was available to talk about um, these war zone trauma kits, which are being marketed to and also purchased by schools um, and what my thoughts were on that. So here's the article. I'm going to read the article and then I'm going to talk about why I said what I said and kind of how I'm backing my position, which is not um, aligned to the majority position in this article. Okay, here we go. School is a battlefield. Some schools are investing in war zone trauma kits to stop gunshot victims from bleeding to death. The medical kits, which contain tourniquets, medicate gauze, coagulant to stop bleeding, and other medical supplies generally cost between $40 and $100, could help school staff and students treat the wounded before professional help arrives. The initiative has gained traction after a recent spate of school shootings, including a February massacre at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Smith High School in Parkland, Florida, that killed 19, or excuse me, that killed 17 people. Suffolk County School District started stocking kits this year, accompanied by training in how to apply tourniquets and dress wounds. The Central Bucks, Chester County, and Lower Marion School District in Pennsylvania will also equip their schools with kits this fall. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported. School safety experts say the medical kits tested on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan could be deployed for various uses, including sports injuries or science lab explosions, not just in the case of a school shooting. Yes, tools like these might come into play in a school shooting, but they also may be relevant to a sports activity or other special event setting when someone is accidentally injured, said Ken Trump, the president of National School Safety and Security Services. Dr. Matt Levy of Stop the Bleed, a movement dedicated to stopping preventable deaths called the instance of gun violence in schools and unfortunate truth of modern society. He said stocking the medical kits could play a part in keeping child gunshot victims alive, but that the kits alone are by no means a solution to preventing gun-related deaths in schools. We have only minutes if someone is bleeding from an extremity to get them to a trauma center, Levy told the Daily News. If bystanders 
who we call immediate responders, can render immediate aid before professional help arrives, that would help, he said. This doesn't address the societal issues around shootings. We are just trying to get after the injuries we can do something about. Levy added the kit sales have gone up since Stop the Bleed, which is an organization, Stop the Bleed, began selling them about a year ago. He said the organization's site sees an uptick in traffic every time there is a high-profile shooting. Critics argue that efforts should instead be focused on finding ways to report threats in a timely manner. School safety expert David Proden, would have liked to have seen the doctor in there, Megan, but David Proden said there was a push to bring supply kits into schools in 2007 after a gunman killed 32 people on Virginia Tech's campus in Blacksburg, Virginia. It took a long time to clear the building for first responders to come inside, he said. So there was a long delay in bringing supplies into the building. First responders often arrive before school shooting situations end and are equipped with materials designed to stop victims from bleeding to death, he said. He claims marketers are behind the move to introduce the kits into schools as they compete for grant money dedicated to improving school safety nationwide. I have never heard of a situation where this has been applied by anyone working in a school. He said, I don't think this is realistic at all. EMS and fire have modified their response. and They get tactical gear and units into schools quicker than in the past. So this is just clever marketing, he said. Instead, he thinks schools should invest resources in severely underfunded reporting systems. We know in recent events that shooters had posted to social media and people were well aware of their intentions. But we didn't have a reporting system that encouraged students to break the code of silence. So I have a pretty significant amount of this article (laughs) dedicated to my quotes. Um, Now, I have much respect for the other uh, people quoted in this article. Um, Ken Trump uh, president of National School Safety and Security Services. He's testified before Congress numerous times. Um, he is outstanding and has devoted his life to school safety. Um, I don't know much about Dr. Uh, Matt Levy. I do know um, he is an MD and has military experience. Um, definitely value um the work that he has. So I have an opinion that's different. I very much respect the other people cited in this, in this article. Um, here's something I think is contributing to this also. So on October 6, 2017, the white house launched the stop the bleed campaign where basically they were saying we should get when we like, you know, society and white house is behind this. We should get supplies into schools so if there is a shooting um, or intruder situation leading to mass harm, that then these resources would be there, okay? So this has White House backing, which means it also is probably going to get funding when you write for grants and things like that because now you're aligned to a White House initiative. So I'm not really for (laughs) For that, I, I, I think that is, um, that is a response that is more political than empirical. But anyway, 
And some going on also, we talked about these kits being sold by Stop the Bleed website. I went on to purchase one kit, put it in my checkout box. It was $99 for one kit. So here's what I want. So, so these things, I used to know them as like Israeli clot kits, okay, when I would train with um, police. And basically, um, if there was a gunshot wound to somebody, for example, or, or a wound that was profusely bleeding, you could pack it with this this material, and it would basically be a coagulant, and it would stop um, the area from bleeding, or it would substantially so slow the bleeding down. Which, again, in most cases, um, would p- potentially prolong life. Okay, so we know that, like, we know if there's a wound, apply pressure to a wound. So this coagulant kind of um, does that um, to some extent. So, you know, these things are coming off the battlefield. These are these are battlefield-tested materials. So here's my justification, though, for why I'm a critic of this and saying this isn't how I would prioritize or encourage anybody to prioritize spending their money for school safety. If I did a prioritization matrix, this would score pretty low, on my prioritization matrix. So, and and to say that you're going to use these things for sports injuries or science lab explosion, well, science lab explosion, <laughs> probably very rare. And again, sports injuries, this, this would be over the top to use things um, to this effect to sports injuries. And, the, and, and you typically have trainers, right, at major sporting event, you know, for school events anyway. So to think you're going, someone's going to get a cut and you're going to apply a tourniquet and you know, um, clotting agent, that to me seems out of bounds. But anyway, let me go into my justification for my position of of being critical of this. One, the probability of both a situation to use such supplies and the opportunity to use the supplies are both low in terms of probability. Okay, so here's where I want to draw a contrast. So this isn't like an AED, okay? It's not It's not a defibrillator that somewhere in a hallway someone collapses of um, respiratory or, not, or, or um, cardiac arrest. You don't, so you go out and grab an AED. Yes, so that makes sense to have AEDs in schools um, because we have a populate, you know, a dense population in there um, and AEDs have safe lives. I know that, I mean, Check out the video I did with with Kyle. So anyway, um, the problem here is this, the rub for me is this is being made out to be kind of like an AED type thing. Let's go back to the situation. If you have a school shooting, first of all, where are you going to locate these kits? If you have 99, are you putting each a kit in each classroom? Are they spaced throughout the school? Where are these kits going to be? The other part is... This is not an AED type situation. You are, if something happens with an intruder situation, gunshots, you are not going out into the hallway, into cafeteria, into some area to render assistance until you have police there who have secured that building. Let's say even if you think it's a lone shooter, okay, you think it's a lone shooter and that shooter takes his or her, 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 his or 
her own life, you do not know that that's the only shooter. You don't know that there isn't a coordinated um, attack going on with other shooters, okay, other intruders. And I think so that's that was like why Virginia Tech, for example, in 2007 took so long to clear because police needed to clear the entire building to make sure that show the shooter wasn't working with other shooters so you weren't walking into an ambush. So this, to me, if you have this, you, you're not going to have a situation of if students are shot in a hallway or, you know, in, in a room, whatever, outside, you're not going to have people who are going to be able to go to them to render this aid until that you've had your police and your responders have arrived and secured the scene. You know what I'm saying? Otherwise, you're encouraging people to walk into what could very well still be an active scene, and then they just become additional victims. That is what you are doing here. So again, you're thinking that the, the you you are putting it now on the person, um, the teacher, the staff member, adult students, whatever, to believe who've been trained in use of these things to believe that the event has concluded. Um, so you take this back, maybe you're thinking, well, what if it's then someone shot in my classroom and we have a kit there and I can use this? Well, but those, those things are very rare. Like those, the probability of that is very rare. Okay. That you're going to be alive. You're going to be able to get this kit. You're going to be able to administer this kit. Um, if anything, like how, Here's my my question to us. What fidelity do we even have in teaching staff and students about basic first aid, applying pressure, how to how to make a tourniquet, things like that? We don't do that. Yet we're going to teach them how to use these kits and and these these um, clot clotting agents. No, I mean it's to to maybe think you're going to have it there. And, and, you know, the first responders then would have access to it, maybe, but the first responders right now pack these things. They have them, okay, because it's not just schools are going to. It's other uh, shooting or mass casualty type events. First response has changed, and it's also become tactical first response. So we'll get into that in a second. So again, this score is very low on my probability matrix, meaning like if we had dollars to spend, if we had... $10,000 $10,000 to spend, where would we spend them? Um, this wouldn't be high on my list. Staff or students, again, are not going to enter a hot zone to treat gunshot victims. It's not like grabbing that AED. You, you, when you pull that AED when someone has had cardiac arrest, you're not coming down the hallway and someone is shooting at you and going to ambush you. That's a completely different situation. Um, okay, response to a school shooter call it. Is, is not like it was at Columbine. Columbine was more of the, the SWAT assembled, valuable minutes ticked away, the building entrances, exits, windows, whatever, weren't marked well. Um, you know, Columbine, the building originally was built to be a warehouse, and then it was made to be a school. You know, I think it was a, a combo, so it could be converted to a warehouse if that area didn't develop. So anyway, um, we know that first responders, when an all-call goes out for a shooting um, at a school, the responders are there extremely fast. That's any responder 
um, is, you know, police are getting there. And in most cases, they are entering that building very rapidly. So you are having, and then you're also having tactical fire and tactical EMS now, meaning especially EMS um, being trained more like it's this military scenario, which was described um, in the article of EMS coming up and, and after police have gotten in initially have, have secured a scene that EMS is coming up and they're wearing, you know, bulletproof um, gear and coming in more um, with more tactical materials, which would be some of these clotting agents and so forth. Um, and let's talk about, okay, what would I score higher on a risk probability matrix? So if I have this $10,000 to spend, what else would I, what would, what would I spend it on? Well, one, you know, physical security, locked, strong doors, not hollow corridors, but locked, strong doors to the building and also to classrooms. Because most times school intruders, school shooters will not penetrate a locked classroom, okay? Most times they'll work at the handle. If they can't get it open, they'll go to the next one. They're going to the easiest, um, less fortified area. That's what they're doing or they're roaming the halls trying to find people because they know for the most part they only have so much time before they are going to be confronted by law enforcement. So that's the other thing in, you know, that you are, um, you have, again, doors which are strong and doors which are default to lock position and can be locked. Okay. So that's number one. Um, number two, drill fidelity. Mandate increased drills and accountability. And people do drills, and this is the thing that irritates me. They do drills at a certain time of day, and they won't do them at a different time of day because, well, it'll interfere with lunch. Or it'll interfere with people getting on and off the buses. Well, if there's going to be an intruder, it can happen at any time. The other part is you run that drill for 20 to 25 minutes, and you document um, who's been able to hear the drill. So maybe you have to put some money into PA systems. Um, make sure your, your two-way radios that you can communicate you know, um, throughout your building. Um, and that also, so you're walking around checking that the doors are locked, okay? You're actually checking the handles. And you are then asking students and staff immediately afterwards through a short survey, which will take, I've, I've done several that I've gotten out, you know, like literally five minutes and then doing some student focus groups. Okay. On, um, what, it, what was your response to the, the drill? What didn't you understand? You know, this is where students will say like, I was between rooms. So do I just go find my classroom or do I go to the cl- closest classroom? And, or someone will say like, you know, teacher would say, we heard the lockdown thing, but then like another student knocked at my door and wanted to get in or pounded on my door. Should I let that student in? So those are the type of questions you get through focus groups. Okay, here. So uh, invest in physical um, drill fidelity, uh, focus groups, big threat identification reporting systems accessible to all youth. Okay, I'm putting these kind of all on the same plane as like here's where I would put my money into these things. Um, Threat identification, so identifying situational awareness, what's different in your environment, um, what is what is a threat, what are the threats on social media. We know these things get posted. People are made aware of them. Um, 
and then also that you have reporting systems that are accessible to all youth, including youth with disabilities, which could be between 15 and 25% in some schools or students who are English language learners, so they know how to report. It's not this tell an adult system. It, it might be that you're comfortable in telling an adult. You also have um, online reporting systems and whatever, but you're teaching students, you're practicing how to do that. And finally, finally, you know, there there is virtually no, there could be no funding, I haven't seen it, funding for research on what factors motivate today's youth to break the code of silence. It was 1997, Bethel, Alaska, school shooting. Left two people dead. Um, and a, a couple of the, the students' peers had showed him how to use a shotgun, um, which he got from a relative. And about 20 students showed up at school on a mezzanine. One brought a camera because they wanted to see the school shooting. That was going to happen, and it did. Um, why didn't they tell? So where is the money at the front end of this, okay, at the front end of this to, one, we know that this residue exists, so threat identification reporting systems. That, to me, on a priority probability matrix comes out much higher than these these um, high-end blood clot first aid type kits, okay? The other part is, where is the funding? Where are the funding opportunities and the very in-depth research on what factors motivate today's youth to break the code of silence? Not youth, not of this 20 years ago, but today, the social media youth and, and the way that youth are communicating and what are the barriers to breaking the code of silence today? What's contributing to that, okay? How can we find success in that? Different studies, um, and to me, that's proactive, and that gets to the empirical findings of, again, that we know that this evidence exists, that youth are aware of it, but why aren't they reporting it? Are they not reporting it? Because, one, they're, they're just not, um, w- they're not willing to report it and, and, and stand out. Two, do they not understand the reporting systems? Um, three, is it situational awareness? They're just not tuned into it. I mean, what what is going on? Are they afraid of becoming victimized themselves if they report? I I don't know. There's a lot of older studies on code of silence, but not code of silence specific to um, school shooters. So, hey, I think that would would be a great thing. So that was why I took my position on this, because I think we can be a lot more proactive. I think we can look at things from the front instead of um, these things which are more, not even forensic, but it's after event that we can do a lot pre-event. It may be a combination, but I don't don't think putting these kits into, um, spending the money on these kits is worth it. I don't believe that. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perot. 
Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.